Welcome to Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me today... Sean Baker. Today's topic is the 1946 film, It's a Wonderful Life. So if for some reason you have not seen this movie, we'll do a plot summary, but I highly doubt at this point no, nobody has either seen this movie or at least heard of the plot and know the basic story. But in case you don't, here's the plot. We follow a man named George Bailey. He lives in the town of Bedford Falls. We learn of his life through his guardian angel. As a kid, he's, uh, he's known for doing incredibly selfless acts throughout his life. Mm-hmm. As a kid, his little brother almost drowned when they were sledding on the ice, and he saved him, which caused the result of hearing in one of his ears. As he grew up, he, um, his dad runs the Bailey uh, Loan, which is basically the one thing holding this town from being completely controlled by a, a banker named Mr. Potter, who's not very, who's a pretty bad person, who's pretty soulless, only really cares about money. Yeah. He has plans, as he's about to graduate, he has plans to see the world, travel around, do everything, but his father dies of a stroke. And he's still about to leave, but they said, we want you to run the Bailey Building and Loan, otherwise we're going to give it to Potter. So knowing that this is the only thing he can do to save the town from being controlled by Potter, he stays in Bedford Falls and doesn't leave. He falls in love with um, Mary Hatch. They get it was a they've known each other since childhood. And he moves mm-hmm. on, and he's still thinking about leaving, but he decides to stay and marry her. And he sees everyone else sort of become more do the things he wants to do. Yes, His friend um, Sam Wainwright becomes a successful at plastics becomes very rich and he goes around the world does everything and bailey's still hanging in the so he builds bailey park meanwhile all still staying and fighting against potter during one day they're making um a payment for the eight thousand dollars and he's letting his and his uncle but the uncle misplaces the eight thousand dollars and they will get in serious trouble and he realizes that and then potter takes this advantage and he's saying i'm going to call the cops on you you're going to be ruined and then Bailey breaks down in house, runs off, heads to the bridge, and is contemplating suicide. And the guardian angel jumps in to basically stop him from considering that. But Bailey's still in the dumps. He says, I wish I'd never been born. And so the guardian angel shows him this world where he was never born. And he, he realizes the town is now controlled by Potter. It's called Pottersville. Everyone's more miserable. You know, his wife never got married and became an old maid. His boss he had as a child that he stopped from making a terrible decision, made that terrible decision. He's a drunk and was in prison for a very long time. Yeah. And so he realizes, he runs back, and he he realizes that I do wish I was born. It's give me another chance. And then he wakes back up, and he's back into his old world, and he's, you know, he's happy, even though he still thinks that he's going to face jail time because of the missing eight thousand dollars and he comes home and then everyone who's he's ever helped comes back and chips in all the money to get that eight thousand dollars to pay it off and then it's happily ever after his brother comes home who's a war hero and he says mr bailey the richest man in town and then then you hear the bells ring clarence has now got his wings because he was never officially an angel with wings until he does this deed and that's how the movie ends if for some reason you've never never seen seen it yeah and it's uh, it's probably if you want to think in terms of the history of storylines in cinema, it's it's the granddaddy 
not necessarily the granddaddy in fiction, but certainly in film, the granddaddy of the alternate history uh, uh, um, device. And actually, in, in literature, as far as I know, uh, I could be wrong about this, but uh, the, the true granddaddy of them all is actually A Christmas Carol, um, the portion of that story where Scrooge is shown an alternate future if he doesn't change his ways is, is the true granddaddy. So there might have been some influence here on the part of uh, the man who wrote the novel that this one was based on. Um, don't know. Um, but yeah, that's basically the storyline. Uh, it's kind of neat the way they've set it up in the film is you've got two halves. It's almost perfectly divided into two halves. And the first half of the film is uh, set in the framework of uh, Clarence Oddbody, um, the uh, angel second class, second class yeah. being uh, given background information on his case by Joseph. I uh, don't quite know who he is. And another guy that's uh, basically a superintendent of angels. So it's kind of a funny artifice. It, it makes it sound like, you know, up in heaven, there's this kind of this bureaucracy, right? Mm-hmm. Social work bureaucracy. And uh, we're just seeing a, a little bit of a, 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 a peek into that into that world. And they're not, they're not uh, too confident with Clarence. And he, he's not uh, been in a position to earn his wings because... He's uh, what do they they say something funny about him, but he's he's not too intelligent apparently. Yeah. Um, but he gets the job done. Gets the job done. Um, mission seems to be primarily to prevent uh, George from committing suicide, and he realizes in order to do that, he's got to convince George that it is in fact false that uh, everyone around him is. Uh, would have been better off without him. It's, it's kind of an interesting crisis for George because you see throughout the film that he's obviously frustrated in his own ambitions. He wanted to travel the world. He wanted to become an architect, and he's never able to do this. That's definitely there, but when push comes to shove, what bugs him most uh, after this debacle of the $8,000 with Uncle Billy is that he sees uh, the potential there for that uh, uh, that event ruining um, life for his wife and kids. That's the most important thing for him. And he's emotionally a wreck, and he thinks, because he's got this life insurance policy um, that's worth $15,000, that if he kills himself, uh, that would... Uh, they'd at least be able to cash that in and, as it were, start over without a massive amount of debt. Uh, of course, we could quibble with George in that uh, they're not going to pay out for a suicide. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, yeah, he's emotionally distraught. That's why he's thinking that. Um, so that, that's, that's interesting. You know, it, it's not because his, he's frustrated in his own life goals. It's because he thinks he's royally screwed it up for other people. Uh, and Clarence actually, to his credit for an allegedly dim-witted angel, sees that. And he realizes, that's what I need to change. And he sees that opening, like you said, when uh, George says, I wish I'd never been born. Then he consults with the uh, his boss and the one just above him in the bureaucracy there again. And then he says, okay, you've got your wish. And then he shows in this alternate timeline. And uh, what's... Very interesting about this from a 
philosophical angle is if if you look at if you look at the literature in philosophy, there's there's a lot of talk about possible worlds, and uh, there's a very realistic interpretation of counterfactual statements, uh, basically statements that say something that is not actual but could have been, right? Like uh, the Lions uh, won the 1972 Super Bowl, mm-hmm. right? Um, clearly, that's not a factual statement. It's probably a factual statement that they will never lose, win one, but in, at any rate. Yeah. Um, some readings of those kinds of uh, sentences, and I won't go into too much detail here, uh, say that the, what those sentences actually refer to are states of affairs and parallel, as it were, universes, where these states of affair, where these events uh, are actual. From our point of view, they're just merely potential or possible. But from that other world's point of view, uh, they're just as real as the events in our world are to us. So the idea here, it's very interesting, is that Clarence and his his uh, bosses have taken George and put him in a world where George was never born, right? And this world where George has never was never born is a particularly bad one yes. for all of the people around him. Uh, Mary's lonely. She's a librarian. That's not actually the worst fate in the world. It's kind of funny. They describe her as... Uh, uh, old maid, old maid. You know that's kind of a kind of a forties thing there. But uh, you can look at other people. Uh, the bartender, uh, played yeah. by Sheldon Leonard, who's a nice guy in the in the in George's world. He's just he's just a tough. It's a very <laughs> like a almost a film noir. Yeah, world. exactly. I mean, the, it's called Pottersville because yeah. it's control. So you have this corrupt big city controlled by this greedy, yes. evil, yeah. corrupt businessman. Yeah. You have Gloria Graham who is Violet and she's almost like a femme fatale. Looks like she just killed somebody in a nightclub. Yep. She's almost, she's, has that Brooklyn accent, so she sounds almost like a mall or a gangster. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, Nick talks like a gangster. So yeah. every it's like this town that you know you almost expect Raymond Chandler or yeah. you know Dashiell Hammett to write it because actually there was a novel by Dashiell Hammett called Red Harvest about this corrupt town called Personville. Yeah. No, Poisonville. I think. Poisonville. Yeah. So it's like it's a bit yeah. like Pottersville, Poisonville. They, thing. Yeah, and they're really driving that point home when he's <clears throat> in that panic run, run, running through the streets. And every other business is a strip club or bars or something like that. So this particular parallel universe is particularly nasty. And uh, might be kind of a fun place, though. You, you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't get bored going to Potter's. I, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, but what's kind of interesting, though, is his, uh, Potter is apparently as depraved and soulless as he is in the actual world, right? And... Uh, I, I, the message uh, may be with regard to uh, the character Potter, I don't know, but it may be that, uh, gee, in any possible universe where uh, Mr. Potter exists, he's, he's mm-hmm. equally vile. So which, maybe a different world where somebody shows what happened if Mr. Potter wasn't wasn't born, it would be this perfectly. I, I guess so, but yeah. you would think just in terms of sheer possibilities, you'd, you'd think there'd be some possible worlds where Potter isn't such a bad guy, yeah. right? And uh, maybe some of the possible worlds where uh, George doesn't exist uh, don't turn out so bleak. Um, you would think, yeah, right? But they've picked one particular one. 
uh, to drive the message home to him um, that his presence is important. And it, it does raise an interesting question is, you know, a, a kind of parallel on the other side of the coin. If it's, if it's true that um, all possible potters are vile, regardless of what possible universe they exist, is it true that all possible Georges are as good as the George in this world? Um, and that it, it would always be the case if he doesn't exist, things would be as dire as they are in this film. Um, don't know the answer to that, but that's the kind of question that uh, you think of with possible world uh, metaphysics, because there are potentially an infinite number of such possible universes. And what's interesting about Potter is because he is one of the most vile villains in movie history. Mm -hmm. I remember reading a list on the American Film Institute of all-time great villains. He's in the top ten. But what's interesting is, especially at this time when this was Hollywood, this was the Hayes Code. And one of the things about the Hayes Code is if you had a bad guy in the movie, they always had to get their justice. If it was a killer, he had to get at least captured by the police. He... Potter does not get punished in this movie. Yeah. He's got himself $8,000. True, Bailey's still around. Bailey's g g having that debt paid off. So Bailey's in the clear. But Potter's still still around. Yeah. Uh, so it's, if, it's interesting. Well, if, if, if the bad guy doesn't <clears throat> get his in the end in that era, it's also, it would, it would inevitably be the case that he has a turn of heart. And becomes a good guy. I don't think so. And there's no Scrooge. This doesn't thing. happen with Potter either. I mean, he he's he, like I said, perfectly depraved <laughs> and soulless. So that is an it, it's an interesting um, uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? Uh, an interesting anomaly yeah. for that time period. Well, it is interesting because we talk about when this movie was released. I mean, now we think of it just, you know, it's the all-time Christmas classic. I guarantee you, 8 o'clock Christmas Eve on NBC, it's going to be on like it is every year. Yep. That wasn't what it was like, though, when it came out. It, I mean, it did get Academy Award nominations. It was nominated for Best Picture. But the big winner that year was The Best Years of Our Lives, which is also a great movie. But anyway, yeah. it wasn't extremely well-received. Yeah, I lost it money. Lost a lot of money. Yeah. And people, this was considered a somewhat communist propaganda. They figured because the big wealthy banker, Mr. Potter, is just this heartless, evil person without any redeeming qualities, people call this communist propaganda. And this was post-World War II, so we yeah. are now in the Cold War, so... People are that's, really getting... That's interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're conveniently ignoring the fact that the good guy in the film is also a banker. <laughs> but but uh, getting back, because the original release, this is also post-World War II, and it reflects a lot of that, I think, in not only just Capra's, Capra, the director, but also James Stewart. James Stewart served mm -hmm. quite... Uh, he's We see he was a lieutenant colonel. Uh, no, he, he retired a Cap brigadier general. Brigadier general and in the Air he, Force. Yeah, and he, he ran bombing missions, uh, quite a number of them. I'm, I'm thinking of 30 or so uh, in Europe. And you can see that, that scene when he just blows up at his family. That feels very much like many veterans would experience when they get back home when just nothing is just going quite right and even just the smallest little thing is going to set them off yeah. because of what they've experienced and going back to um, the movie that came out that same year the best years of our lives that's what the, one the another airman uh, dana andrews character had to exp experience in that movie right yeah and so again that's a reflection going back a few episodes here i think uh, that's a reflection of uh, that, that generation's filmmakers, in this case Capra, 
uh, having uh, at least, if not directly uh, experienced uh, combat, at least worked very closely with people that did. Mm-hmm. And Jimmy Stewart's a classic example of somebody that actually did. And you can see he's tapping into those experiences when he is uh, uh, George Bailey in a few of these scenes here. Very powerful acting. Um, he's he's tapping into that experience there. Yeah, and we, we were, not too long ago we talked about that Netflix series 5 came back and Capra was the head of the um in washington he did the why we fight series but he kind of oversaw production of all these other filmmakers who were going overseas yes and one of the things they talked about with when they talked about it's a wonderful life was how this was almost a reflection of capra coming back to hollywood because he hadn't really gone to hollywood made a movie since the war this is his first one post world war ii and they talked about how you know this guy who's coming back and everything changes nothing's right he's way out it's it's a bit of capra and if you look at his career post world war ii because this movie was a flop i mean even though it's considered a classic and it's probably his best known movie this was a flop and even the films he made after this Mm -hmm. like i not i i don't even top of my head, I couldn't tell you a single one. There was one with Frank Sinatra, but it was considered his career was on the decline. So he would maybe was being considered old fashioned by this time because of the war. Yeah. And, you know, you can say the same thing about the uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart uh, coming back. He thought uh, he had PTSD and he thought, I can't go back to acting for a while. And he took some time off and uh, decompressed and eventually did work his way back and then became uh you know, this is his best, one of his best. This is probably the best known role he, he did. Yeah. But he had several that are just excellent. And uh, also did a great deal of work, um, um, you know, uh, with veterans uh, afterwards because he, he knew about this. Um, so it, it is reflective of the experience of both of those men for sure. Yeah. And going back to why I'm talking about people, this film wasn't so well received when it came out. One of the biggest criticisms of Capra, and this isn't just because it's, well, this is a modern audience with their pessimism looking on something they feel is quaint and old-fashioned. He was being criticized by critics even during his heyday mm-hmm. as, quote-unquote, Capricorn. That was the phrase. That yeah. Not just this movie, but something like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, where, once again, it's this little guy standing up against this corrupt, you know, political machine that runs everything in Washington. He's the one that saves the day. Yeah. Mr. Deeds goes to town when it's this guy who just happens to be given this large inheritance and he doesn't want anything. He wants to give it to all the people who are suffering because of the depression. People felt even back then that his stuff was too corny and too idealistic. And people were there. I've read some uh, thought pieces about this who say that Pottersville's realistic. Bedford Falls isn't so it would we would be we are living in Pottersville in Bedford Falls is the idealized <laughs> wish we, we wish we would be there yeah I, I hope that's not the case uh, I, uh, getting back to that spectrum of cases it, it seems to me that um, Pottersville is on one extreme and maybe maybe it's the case that Bedford Falls is way over on the other extreme but you know what even even as Bedford Falls, you know, there are hints there that mm-hmm. uh, things aren't entirely copacetic. I mean, there is still the tragedy of loss with Mr. Gower, right, that almost leads him to making a fatal in- uh, accident. He's also apparently an alcoholic. Um, Billy, Uncle Billy, he should not be working for that 
He's that forgetful. He is, he is not a, a very well equipped. And the bankers, you know, I mean, Potter does take an extreme position, but the bankers are still having to deal with that difficult question in the uh, ethics of uh, banking of just when is it appropriate to give mortgage loans? And when is it unadvisable to do so, not only for your institution, but for the people that you would be giving the loans to? You can still see, see hints of that kind of concern in that world. So it's not entirely, to use another pop culture reference, leave it to Beaverland. Um, it may be a little bit closer to that end than Potter or than, yeah, than our world. Yeah, and, and I would say our world isn't as bleak as Pottersville, for goodness sakes. There's nothing going on in Pottersville other than dance halls and <laughs> bars and fights. As I said, it's film noir city. You know? Yeah, it, it's pretty darn bleak. And since everybody knows why we're doing it at this particular time, because it's, uh, what, it's what, a what holiday line. is it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, what's so interesting is... I read about it. Not only was it not well received, not many people really considered it much of a Christmas movie. Well, because the interesting case was it, had, it fell into the copyright, so it was for a while it was in the public domain. And there's still like if you go on archive.org, the big public domain, you can find a copy of this movie. Yeah. But because it fell in the public domain, TVs in the '60s and '70s said, "Let's put this off." Hey, it's it. A lot of it takes place during Christmas. Let's do it during the holiday season. And that's how it kept going. It kept getting played. People started watching it more and more. And Capro lived to, he lived quite a long time. He didn't die until 90. He lived to see kind of this resurgence and even said, I never even meant this for this. It's great, but I honestly never meant for this to be a Christmas movie in yeah. the first place. Well, and it wasn't even released during the holiday season. It was released in March of 47. Uh, about three weeks later, there was actually a radio version on the Lux Radio Theater, which they uh, tended to work hand-in-hand -hand with Hollywood with films and uh, produce what I would call Sanka freeze-dried versions of complete films. Um, and, yeah, it just kind of fell stillborn on the public. I mean, it didn't generate a lot of interest at the time. And it is odd from a hindsight perspective to hear that Capra didn't consider it to be a Christmas film. I mean, we're, we're so inured with it being, especially during the 80s and 90s, when uh, yeah, there were no, it was public domain uh, taken advantage, the, the public domain nature of the film was taken advantage of by TBS in particular. Yeah, Turner, uh, Turner colorizing it. Colorizing it and showing it back to back to back to back for months um it was it was almost overkill so for us having lived through those decades we couldn't see how it can possibly be a christmas movie um but uh, you know uh, capra sees it i think as uh, uh a moral lesson for all of us that uh, uh no matter how insignificant you think you are or perhaps even how flawed you think you are um, if you think about it the kind of influences you have on others are rather dramatic yet subtle mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, you would you will only gr grow to appreciate that uh, in hindsight right and it's an anti-suicide message, I think, an anti-desperation uh, message. 
that I think um, is valuable for most people. Mm-hmm. And that's why this film is, is so popular. I don't think necessarily it's popular only because it's a Christmas movie. Well, even going back to the theme of Christmas, I think there is a lot of, you know, say Christmas kind of themes in the movie. One of the things I feel that Bailey, you can almost say, is very Christ-like. Yes. This is a guy who doesn't think of himself, who is always helping out others, never questioning it or even... He, he, he's human. He gets angry many yeah. times, but he's all, he always does the right thing. He's always trying to stand up against the evil in the world of Potter. But yeah. even there's a faithness to this because... At the end, he prays to God and saying, I'm at my ends, yeah. and God gives him this oh, guardian and, angel. And, and you're right. This is very, very uh, an interesting parallel to the life of Christ, right? Because even in his person, he's supposed to be God, right? But even in his person, you see when he prays to his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, that interesting mix of self-pity, anger at God, yet the realization that he has to do what he has to do as basically a service to humanity, right? And you see that even in divine personage, you see that kind of tension and conflict, inner conflict. And George is the exact same way. He's not a perfect human being, obviously. At times, he's incredibly selfish, and he says some really cold and callous things to others, particularly that scene when he's really taking it out on his kids and his wife, right? That's powerful because it's showing, you know, that uh, human flaw that he has, right? Mm-hmm. And then he does, but still, uh, at his core, he you're right, he has this kind of, his first inclination is always to think about, what kind of impact do does this situation or my actions have on the people around me? That's his first in, inclination. But it's always in conflict with his very natural human inclination to look out for himself. Uh, but it wins out in the end, doesn't it? Yeah, and you wonder if now that once every once he's shown this world and everything's back to normal and it's a very it's like a we could say a Christmas miracle that you know people come together and chip in all this money to save him from that eight thousand dollars. Yeah, and it feels maybe that now Bailey has now reaffirmed his faith because now he realize you know we see the bell ring at the end. Clarence has gotten his wings and his prayers have been answered. And you feel that now his faith has you know he's now has complete faith in God and you know praying to him and helping to helping things out. Yeah, uh, because. Uh, uh, as as Clarence tells him, he is the answer to that prayer. It was not the the punch in the face he got from the uh, the husband of the yeah. teacher that he had insulted over the phone. Who, by the way, we never see at the end of the yeah, film. He you better know? make amends to her too. Yeah. He was pretty nasty to her. Yes, he, he was. He was terrible to her. poor teachers. They always get it. They always get it in movies. You notice this. Yeah. So the thing that naturally occurs to you at the end of this film. Is not only as you're talking about uh, what does George do now? Because I think you're right. I think his faith has been affirmed, right? And he's going to be a lot less conflicted about uh, uh, his personal ambitions versus service to the community. He was always kind of a service guy anyway, right? Um, 
But you, you, you want to ask the same kind of follow-on questions for Bedford Falls, and in particular, um, Potter. What's going to happen with Bedford, Bedford Falls and Potter after this? Because Potter has absolutely no compunction with, about keeping that money, the $8,000 that Uncle Billy stuck in the newspaper by accident, right? Um, and it, he, he's showing no signs of remorse, like he would return it. Uh, you know, no, like you said earlier, he's just is. a quintessential bad guy. So you have to wonder, just as a kind of follow-on with this story, what happens with him and uh, his bid to control the town, right? Because of what's happened with George here, it's 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 certainly saved the building and loan at least for the short shorter term. But uh, what are they going to do about Potter in the longer term? Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, where each episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying so long, and be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies. Music